Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Timothy Bushman, who is Assistant Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at Princeton University. His research aims to understand how the brain accomplishes intelligent and rational behavior by guiding our actions towards a goal. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Yeah, so thanks for doing this. So, um, so I was looking at all your papers, Tim. Uh, you appeared to be really productive during the pandemic. Um, many, many papers coming out in 2021. Uh, but I want to start with uh, sort of the review paper, uh, balancing flexibility and interference in working memory. So you say working memory is central to cognition, flexibly holding a variety of thoughts needed for complex behavior. Yet despite its importance, working memory has a severely limited capacity, holding only three to four items at once. Um, this is really fascinating. I have a lot of uh, mad neuroscientists, uh, Tim, but I'll say this again. Uh, I often see some uh, relationships to sort of the computing world. So this sounds more like a cache in a, in a computer, right? So you. You, you need this information, it's very important. Uh, you don't need it for a long time, but you need it to make a decision to, to do something with it. And then you can you know, sort of um, discard it. Um, but, but there is sort of a competition between uh, capacity uh, and the usefulness of this information, right? So before we get the details of this, Tim, so, you know, a lot of people know about short and long-term memory in the brain, and and working memory, I would imagine, is distinctly different from either one of those, right? Yeah. So when I typically when we think about um, memory in the brain, right? So how do you uh, memory is very important, right, for behavior in, in general because you know if you think of very simple organisms, they kind of have this very short loop, right? They get stimuli that come into them from the outside world and then they make a response. Um, and so somewhere along evolution, we kind of opened up that loop. We broke that loop where we started having memory systems that allow us to change how we're responding to the immediate world um, as a function of what we've experienced in the past, um, as a function of sort of what our goals are, um, what we want to accomplish in the future. Um, and, and so memory really is important for this. And, and so when we think about memory, we think about it um, generally is kind of falling into two forms, short-term memory and long-term memory is, is sort of you, you uh, refer to. Um, and then working memory is kind of a, a special form of short-term memory and that, that uh, um, I think has sort of evolved um, alongside more of, of sort of cognitive control. So, so how do we control our own thoughts? Um, and so, yeah, so if we think about memory broadly, we have this short-term memory and this long-term memory, um, and they're interesting systems and they're interesting uh, sort of 
different needs that each system needs to have, right? So long-term memory, you want to be able to remember things, obviously, for a very long time. Um, you want to have a very high capacity, right? So, um, and we see that in our long-term memory systems. Um, you know, you can remember things from when you were a child and you can remember many, many, many different things. As far as we know, there's really no uh, kind of upper limit in how many things you can remember in long-term memory. Um, and so, of course, the neuroscience of long-term memory is really focused on how you solidify these memories actually in the, the hardware of the brain itself. You change uh, the way that neurons are talking to one another, how they're coupled with one another to sort of store and lock in those memories. Short-term memory is a different thing, right? Short-term memory, as you were sort of alluding to with like a, a cache in a computer system or um, or random access memory or RAM systems in, in computers, um, they're they're much more flexible, right? They're much more uh, plastic. They don't last very long. Like information in there doesn't last very long. You you put something in there, and then, um, you know, in a computer, right? If you turn off the computer, um, or if you start a new program, then what is in that memory gets overwritten, gets forgotten. And there seems to be a similar sort of thing in short-term memory um, in the brain, which is that you can remember things for a short period of time when they're kind of relevant, but then uh, you can very flexibly move and remember something else. Um, and and so that's sort of the, this short-term aspect. And, um, and, you know, the neuroscience, there's lots of different ways in which we thought about how short-term memory might be represented in the brain. Um, in general, and of course this isn't true like 100% of the time, and there's, there's lots of different theories out there, but in general we tend to think about short-term memory as being more activity dependent. Um, so it's really in the pattern of activity um, that's going on in the brain at any moment in time. Um, yeah, there, I was, so I was really surprised by this capacity limitation there, three to four items, uh, what are items need in this context. Um, you know, there's always been this hypothesis that humans are not very good at multitasking. Um, in some sense, is this related to that? Uh, I think that's a, that's a very deep, very good question. Um, I think at the end of the day, it probably is. Um, it's It probably has to do with how many... Um, you things that you can focus on as you pointed out like what what do we mean by item what do we mean about thing i think that's a good question and i'm happy to talk about that sure. in more detail because i think that's um a fundamental question but um yeah i think that these two things are very related right and and there's really um i think a, a good question about why is there this capacity limitation right i mean so you know we're talking about working memory and short-term memory as being um sort of activity dependent so it, it 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 depends on kind of like what pattern of activity that there is so like you know each individual neuron in the brain has some sort of activity that it's producing at each moment in time um there's billions of neurons in the human brain and so why do you end up with three or four items like that just seems very strange um why can't you do uh you know remember a billion things right um and 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 I think the the answer is sort of what we we I try to kind of lay out in that in that paper the, that you were you were referencing at the beginning is that maybe one of the constraints on this is it, there's a trade off between how flexible uh, a system is and uh, what its capacity is and and so again if we want to kind of go back to the computer as a as a as a sort of a way to think about things. You know, you can have specialized systems that are very, very good at doing specific things, right? So you can have like an adder that can add numbers incredibly fast, right? But if you then go and have it try to do something else, it basically can't. Um, and, and so the idea is there's a system that's very good at one thing, but not very flexible at doing other things. And, and, and the idea is that in the brain, you have a, a similar um, uh, sort of constraints right that you can either devise systems and, and grow systems and learn systems that are really good at doing something or you can have something that's a little bit more flexible and working memory is kind of at this heart of this flexibility um and allowing us to sort of it kind of working memory access is kind of like workspace in which you could sort of place thoughts and manipulate them and use them um and and so you 
you know, you can think of anything, right? And and that's kind of the beauty of, of working memory is, is this, this incredible flexibility. And and what we propose is that is that this comes at the cost of um, not being able to do too many things at once, right? You 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 kind of are trading off some of this capacity uh, to in order to maintain this flexibility. Um, I want to dig a little deeper into that trade-off. So flexibility against capacity, it, it, it's not completely intuitive to me, uh, and, and uh, obviously I don't know anything about this. So uh, I, could, I could envision a system that is, you know, from a capacity perspective, let's say it's unlimited, but sort of flexible. If I have a very large capacity system, it allows me to push information around, so to speak, and, and there is a different type of flexibility that comes with it, right? So why is capacity and flexibility competing in this context? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think that um, the idea is, is that how information is represented in the brain um, is, again, in this, this, you know, you have lots of neurons, let's say hundreds of millions of neurons that are, are, are sort of involved in any particular thought at any moment in time. Um, and it's really the pattern of activity across these neurons that's uh, really important um, for this. And so uh, if you think about all of these neurons, right, then then you can have a lot of different patterns that you can put in, right? And so that that's what we mean by flexibility, is that there are a lot of different ways in which you can um, have you, a lot of different patterns that you can have, which means that you can represent a lot of different uh, types of information, right? So red might have a certain pattern of activity, and then the color green has a different pattern of activity. And then if you think about, you know, elephants, it's going to have another pattern of activity, and red elephants is going to have yet another pattern of activity. So there's all of this flexibility in inherent in that in that distributed nature of things. Um, but this comes at, at the cost of, of, of basically using all of those neurons for representing that one individual item. And so if you try to put something else in there, um, they begin to compete with one another. The two representations kind of overlap a little bit and they begin to interfere. And as you add a third item, it overlaps a little bit more and interferes a little bit more. And at some point, as you add a fourth or a fifth or a sixth item, um, they overlap too much and they begin to degrade, right? So your memory for any particular thing might get worse, or you might even forget something. And so you may, you know, try to remember five things, but end up remembering four or, or three items. So, so that's the idea. Yeah, yeah. and, and, and the, the trade-off, right, is that you could reduce the flexibility by using less neurons to represent any individual thing, right? You could say, let me just take a thousand neurons. But that is kind of like, um, you know, if, if you're familiar with like bit depth in computers, right? It's like the number of different patterns you could store in 100 neurons is very different than you could store in, say, in, in a million neurons. And so um, that's the, the trade-off here is that, yeah, you could have more of these stores that are kind of non-overlapping with one another, but then each store is a little bit less flexible. Um, and it seems like likely what the brain's doing is um, trading off between these two things. So it has a very flexible store and then it has these very uh, specific stores at the same time and it uses specific ones when it can when it to do specific behaviors, but then when it needs something flexible so that you can think about, say, you know, pink elephants, then, um, you know, that that's going to rely on this very flexible uh, working memory store. So is sort of the interference uh, that is issue. So I, I'm thinking there's some sort of a U, uh, inverted U-type U relationship here. So if you have, you know, very large capacity and you have a lot of information going in there, you can't really control how they're going to interrelate to each other. And on the left side of that distribution, you have very few neurons and, um, you know, you don't have that much interference in the sense that you know, you cannot take too much information. So in some sense, you limit capacity to reduce interference. Is that the way to think about it? I guess I think about the um, other way around, which is that as you try to put more and more things in there, it's, they inter they're more likely to interfere uh, with one another. And because of that interference, uh, that is effectively, when we say that there's a limited capacity, what we're really saying is that if you add three or four items into the same representation, right? So if you try to represent three or four things at once, that there's going to be more interference 
than if you're only representing two of them. And and, and so this kind of actually comes back to this question that, that we were talking about before, which is like, what is an item, right? And, and, um, and, and of course, that's a very nebulous and we don't really have a great description and or really understanding of what an item is uh, in neuroscience. I think that's that's actually one of the kind of big key remaining questions is what is an item. Um, but what I can say, right, is that, is that um, you know, the, what counts as an item really varies, right? So um, uh, if, you know, the classic example is, um, probably a little bit outdated at this point because nobody ever uses phone numbers anymore. But if you think back to phone numbers, right, they, they were seven digits long and seven is obviously higher than three or four. Um, and so uh, in order to help people remember what, what do phone numbers do, they're sort of chunked up into um, two items really, right? There's that sort of three digit and then a four digit follow-up, at least in the US. Um, and and that that's really key, I think, to to taking something that could have been seven items and turning it into two items, right? And so this is, I think, a good example of how just changing um, uh, what we're calling an item can change how they interfere. And all of a sudden, you're very good at remembering phone numbers, or you can be very good at remembering phone numbers. Um, but you would be pretty poor if I just gave you seven digits, random digits to remember. Um, unless you were chunking them yourself, right? So that process is called chunking, this process of grouping things together into an item. In neuroscience, we call this chunking, or in psychology, we call it chunking. Um, and so the idea is that is that when you chunk, what you're doing is you're um, forming a new representation, right, that's representing those things together, um, and that that representation is more compact, meaning that it's less likely to interfere uh, with, with other things. Um, and so, yeah, there's just that's the that's the sort of idea right now, and and, and again, like it's it, a lot of this is is new research that's been going on. We're trying to understand what is what is an item. Is this true? Right? Do we really see as you sort of group things together into new items and form new items? Do they like do this representations change in a way that that they don't interfere with one another as much? And yeah, yeah. So. It sounds like, Tim, it, it, it's possibly trainable. So suppose I have four different computers that I'm working on, and I'm you know, writing an essay on one, I'm doing some coding on the second one, and I'm watching the stock market on the third one, and I'm doing something else on the fourth one. Um, I could actually uh, chunk, uh, so to speak, those four computer activities into four boxes. And I might be able to switch back and forth between those boxes. Um, without any sort of working working memory interference because they are distinct activities. And, and so when we say capacity, it doesn't mean the ability of the brain to remember. It, it means essentially when you have interference, you, you will lose information if they're sort of, you know, kind of interacting with each other. Is, is it the way to think about it? Yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly right. That, um as you try to do too many things or remember or think about too many things at once, they'll begin to interfere. And you see this also in in behavior, right? So, um, you know, as you were alluding to before, um, this capacity in working memory, I think is very fundamentally related to our inability to say multitask. Uh, because when we are trying to multitask, we're trying to do, again, a very similar thing. We're trying to engage in multiple behaviors at the same time, which is going to necessarily lead to multiple representations, which are going to interfere with one another. Now, if you have, there's some beautiful work from John Cohen, who's a, a colleague here of mine at Princeton. He He's, for example, shown that if you um, learn a task to the point where it becomes its own separate uh, kind of representation, right? And you could think about this even in the extreme, right, like of, of, uh, of even through evolution, pulling out some really fundamental computations and putting them in separate parts of the brain, keeping them away from the thinking parts of the brain, right? And so, for example, breathing. We breathe, we walk down the street, right? Um, you know, you can do all these things and they don't interfere with, you know, your, your ability to think. And it's never that you are, are thinking so hard that you forget to breathe. Right. And, and the idea is that the reason for this is because that's been pulled out and it's been put on into like a separate circuit that's just dedicated for breathing. Um, 
And so what happens if you say do practice something a lot is that um, you essentially what you're doing is you're kind of pulling out or carving out part of the brain that's going to be dedicated machinery for that uh, particular task, right? So if um, you know you're, you you learn to play the piano and you and you practice the piano over and over and over in a particular piece over and over and over, right? Then you get this experience of of being able. It basically plays itself, right? You you're not even really thinking about it. You know you're checking in once in a while, but you can you can think about other things and you're still playing the piano. And and it's because you've kind of pulled these things apart and they're no longer interfering with one another. Um, much like you're sort of chunking thoughts, uh, you can kind of chunk behaviors as well. Yeah, so in the modern context, Tim, driving is an example, I would imagine. Um, you know, we, we almost automatically drive um, after a while. You know, you could be doing a lot of thinking while you're driving. The, yeah. It seems like you, you have delegated a set of heuristics, activities, expectations. It's changing data, which is very interesting, right? It's changing data, but you, you delegated that to a part of the brain that is autonomously doing it for you. Yeah, yeah, and this is where, where the driving then becomes dangerous, right? Because <laughs> you, 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 you rely too much on that, right? And, um, and that's where you can get your, yourself in trouble when um, there's a situation that's unexpected or there's um, some um, you know, deviation from the plan, right, that requires this you're paying attention. It requires working memory. It requires all those cognitive control uh, processes to step in to sort of solve a, a solution, right? You're driving and all of a sudden, you know, the truck in front of you blows a tire, right? Now you have to think and calculate and do all that. If you're not paying attention, you know, if you're texting, if you're, if you're, you know, um, on the self on a phone call, even hands free, right? Like you know, you're you're pulling your attention away from what's in front of you, and that's going to um, slow your reaction time. You're not you're less likely to see what's going to happen. That's that's when you you get in trouble, um, and and I think bad things can happen. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, a great example of of how effective you can be at sort of developing systems that can do really complicated things, right? I mean, we don't have. I guess we're just starting to now get to the point where we can have AI drive to the extent that like human kind of autopilot um, does much better than that, right? Without thinking, as you were saying, right? And so it's a really sophisticated system that can do quite well. And just like the computer AIs um, have trouble when they see something new and, and unexpected, uh, uh, the same thing is true for humans is that if, if you get into a situation where it's something new and unexpected, that's when you have to kick in this other system, you know, this thoughtful system that's sort of sitting on top of, of the, the, the mindless system, for lack of a better word. Yeah. So, so it seems uh, from an evolutionary perspective, the, the basis, um, let me know if I'm thinking about it the correct way. So working memory is sort of a survival mechanism, you know. Uh, the line jumps out, jumps out when you least expected. Something fell from the tree when you weren't anticipating. Whatever the case may be, you want a bunch of data to be held in the working memory so that you can make a sort of a quick decision and a quick action to survive. Is is that uh, sort of the, the the reason it exists? I think, uh, yeah, it's it's tricky, right? Um, because a, a lot of a lot of those sort of situations or examples are 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 very. Those are are situations where you're gonna you're gonna make an almost innate automatic response. You want there, you don't want to think, right? Like if a lion's jumping out at you, you don't want to be thinking uh, very deeply about you know what you know, how hungry is that lion? And like, what really should be the best way for me to escape? Like, no, you just want to get out of there, right? And um, and so I think this is another sort of point of, of there's always trade-offs, right, in, in behavior and uh, how long you spend contemplating and thinking about something um, comes at the cost of, of what, what in neuroscience and psychology is known as opportunity cost, right? You're, you're losing the opportunity to do something else. Um, and so, sometimes that could be very costly, right? Like if you're thinking too much and a tiger's coming at you. Um, other times, right, it, it's not, right? I mean, like, I think there's lots of modern day examples where um, 
you know, maybe you were just, you were late and, you know, pulling the trigger and buying Bitcoin, right? And so you sort of, you missed the the the, the explosion. And, and so, you know, you're on the falling side of the, the curve, right? So, um, you know, that's an opportunity cost, right? Where you, you've missed the opportunity to, to make money. And so I think there's, there's always this trade-off, right? On, on how much do you want to liberate and how long should you deliberate on something? And um, I think, you know, so so from the way I, I think about it is, is from an evolutionary perspective that working memory kind of came along when we needed to do, um, when we really need to be able to develop generalized intelligence, when we wanted to be able to handle novel situations that also weren't things that, um, you know, weren't going to be innately, uh, uh, you know, born into us, right? So like t tigers or, or something moving at you quickly, right, is is going to be an innate response. Every animal, humans included, is going to dodge or move away from something coming at them quickly. Um, and so like, yeah, so that's, it's, it's, it's sort of like tough, right? Because you can have a novel situation. I've never had a tiger jump at me, but I'm pretty sure if a tiger jumped at me, I would still move away from it pretty quickly. Um, so so that's a novel situation, but it's, I think it's still probably relying on, on some of these innate systems. Whereas, yeah, the, I think working memory is playing more in this kind of uh, generalized intelligence way of, of trying to be creative, put things together in ways that aren't you haven't really seen before, maybe be able to predict what's going to come up um, in the future. Okay, if I do this, then this might happen in the world, uh, particularly for social interactions. This is really important, right? How my response, how is it going to, you know, impact somebody else and how, their behavior towards me? And so, um, yeah, I, I think it plays more of that role in, in this kind of higher order uh, thought. That's really interesting, Tim. So, um, what you're saying is that there's a set of instinctual, innate reactions for survival. Working memory is not really adding a lot of value. You're sort of instinctually reacting to a, a stimulus that to survive. Um, on the other hand, on the other side of the spectrum, you have heuristics, um, long, you know, long uh, experiences, lot of data. You have reduced that to heuristics, and you saw you stored it somewhere. You don't need working memory anymore, like you know, playing baseball or. Um, or, or playing an instrument after having done it, you know, so many times, you have no use for working memory on, on that side. Once you reduce that to heuristics and store it, yeah. So, if anything, working memory yeah. is bad in that example. Working memory is bad. Yeah. It's sort of in the middle where you you want to experiment a little bit in the sense that you have some uh, new data coming in, and you want to utilize it in the most sort of flexible fashion or really use the maximum value from that new information that came to you in some fashion. That's where working memory is most valuable. And I think, yeah, and, and when you want to simulate um, possible outcomes, right? So um, if I'm at this state now and, and I do action A, then what will happen in the future? And then you can rewind, right, and say, okay, let me start again, right? So that that's really, I think, where working memory becomes very useful both in looking at the recent past so okay something novel just happened to me let me kind of remember it and dissect what happened and understand what happened but also looking forward um, and be able to say okay can I simulate what's going to happen in the future and and that's a, again like a, I think a, a key really relies on 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 the, the flexibility of working memory that both of those you know I know there's some sort of differing opinions around sort of a larger system. Um, what is the effect of the prefrontal cortex? Um, who is ultimately making these decisions uh, after information is shuttled through the working uh, working memory? What's our sort of the, so I want to touch on uh, one of your other papers, shared mechanisms underlie the control of working memory and attention. You say cognitive control guides behavior by controlling what, when, and how information is represented in the brain. For example, attention controls sensory processing top-down signals from prefrontal to parietal cortex uh, strengthen the representation of tasks relevant stimuli. Uh, a similar selection mechanism is thought to control the representations held in mind in working memory. So, 
So if you go beyond the working memory, how is it sort of connected with the rest of the brain? Yeah, I think so. In, in this paper, we were trying to understand how do you control both what is in working memory, but also more broadly, um, you know, what, what's coming in through your, your sensory systems. And so, um, you know, we've talked a lot about working memory and how it has this limited capacity. Um, visual processing also has a, um, a fairly limited capacity, right? We have this percept that we can actually see everything at once, but we don't really. Um, and instead, what we do is we're sort of moving our attention, we're shifting our eyes around um, the sort of world around us and sort of gathering specific pieces of information. Um, and so both of these systems, right, have this capacity limitation in them. And I think that actually they have the same reason, right? So it's interference in both cases that's limiting the capacity. Um, and so as we've talked about, right, this is, there is this reason for it, I think at least, because there's flexibility, the advantage of flexibility. But but the brain, of course, through evolution, presumably said, well, this also is very limiting to us. So if you, um, for example, if you were to measure the capacity of, of, of working memory in an individual, right, and, and people have done this, Ted Vogel um, at University of Chicago, for example, has, has done a lot of these things where he gives um, you know, a lot of undergrads a, a test on to measure how many items they can hold, right? And it turns out some people are really good. They can hold seven items at once, and some people are not so good. They can only hold two items. And and in the middle, there's kind of three or four is kind of the average, right? But if, like with anything in humans, like there's going to be variance around that average. And it turns out that the people who can hold more, right, you know, five or six items, tend to do better on tests of fluid intelligence. Right, so if you give them a, like a, an IQ test, uh, uh, any of the IQ tests, they tend to score higher than somebody who has a, a working memory capacity of two or three. Um, and the, in some way that makes sense, right? I mean, like it's if you're doing, if you've ever taken an IQ test, right? Oftentimes they involve like you know looking at multiple things and trying to figure out like how they relate to one another. And so if you can hold more information in mind, then like you can. Put them together in different ways, and um, and so it, I think it it makes sense why you would be able why you would score better on those on those tests. Um, so one of one of the things that Ed did is he looked at well what's driving this variability, and it turns out that there uh, a lot of the variability from one individual to another seems to be how well they control working memory. You might think oh some people just have bigger brains, right, <laughs> um, and that's why they can hold five or six items, and some people have smaller brains they can only hold two. That doesn't seem to be the case. Instead, it seems to be that they're just better about protecting working memory. Right, so the people who can hold five or six only let in the useful information and they ignore any distracting information. Whereas the people who can only hold two or three are remembering two or three of the things that they're supposed to, but then they're also remembering other random things that they're not supposed to be remembering. Um, and so it really highlights the importance of this kind of control of, of working memory. Um, and in general, control of behavior, right? So again, with attention, you know, your the attention is your your ability to kind of selectively look at a, a particular sensory stimuli. Again, like it's very important for you to be able to control and direct where you're looking, um, and you need to be able to look at the right things. Um, and if you don't, then you're not going to do as well as somebody who is looking at the right things. And so, um, I think all this sort of highlights the importance of of this kind of control system that's kind of sitting on top of working memory and it's sitting on top of attention and 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 um, and and utilizing these resources uh, to to the best of its ability. And so that's really what this study is about, is trying to understand um, this this control mechanism and where it's coming from. Yeah, it's really interesting. So it's not the CPU, it's the cache. <laughs> if, we, if you can hold more stuff, you probably get better results. Um, well, no? I think this control mechanism would be kind of like the CPU or, or the program even, right? That's controlling what gets into cache. You know, if you put Cache is limited, right? Most of the time, um, and so you have, if you if you fill up cache with a bunch of junk, right, and you're and you're only using a small part of it, then you're going to have to be moving things in and out all the time, which is going to take more time. And it's going to slow you down, um, right? And so, so yeah, I think it's more. I think of it more as this kind of the, the program, really. Yeah, sort of that's, filtering 
filtering information yeah. or, or letting in the, the highest value information to that limited capacity space so that it could be processed more efficiently. Uh, so, yeah. so what I want to ask you, it's not in the paper, is do we have any data that shows this is, you know, you could improve this capability with, um, with practice? Yeah, this is a good question. Um, so, I mean, um, about what is about probably ten years ago, there was this, um, you know, big brain training fad um, where where a lot of these uh, video games came out about how you could train your working memory, and um, I mean that's in reality what they're all trying to do. Uh, you know, it, it was very popular for a while. Um, that motivated, of course, a lot of studies. There, in general, the answer seems to be, unfortunately, no. Mm -hmm. um, you what? Not in a general way, right? So, uh, if I give you a particular task, right? So, if I ask you to play a particular game, right, on your phone, like some some specific brain training game, um, you can improve performance on that game, of course, right? And and it has to do with this control mechanism, right? You you'll you'll get better at putting the right information into working memory. And so um, your the effective capacity, right? The, the, uh, how much of, of your working memory store that you're using for good purposes will go up. Um, but that doesn't tend to really generalize to other tasks. So if I then give you a different task, it's not that all of a sudden you're better at that task as well. And so, um, you know, there's some hints in the literature. I mean, some people have published that, yes, you can improve uh, performance, but yeah, there's right. The way that you publish a paper, of course, in science is that you have to have a positive <laughs> result, right? And so, you know, this isn't, I'm not right. I mean, the answer is like lots and lots of people have tried. There's been lots of very few papers published saying, look at this positive result. And so the, the implication tends to be, it's not the biggest effect in the world. Um, that now that doesn't mean that it's not good for you, right? I mean, I think there's, good evidence of staying active and thinking and no matter what you're doing is is, is definitely good for you long term. Um, but it doesn't it's not like you can necessarily improve it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so so that's that's really interesting. So in some sense, if that were true, uh, what we're saying is that it's sort of hardware limiting. Um, and if hardware is, you know, sort of genetically controlled, then, you know, you're sort of endowed with um, that domain controller, the the capacity of that cache. Clearly, if you put an app on it and you keep uh, keep doing that app, um, that process will get better. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that the whole system generalizes, as you say. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think this is it's. We're still just learning about what. Um, the the mechanisms are of this controller and how it works um and what controls the controller so what limits the controller um in or what what leads to a different controller from one individual to another individual i mean i, I think again I, there's pro, there's going to be trade-offs right so there's there's some i think there's going to be advantages to having you know strong control in certain situations and there's going to be advantages to having weak control in other situations and so um both on an evolutionary time scale as well as sort of in in like our day-to-day our -day lives um and so i don't want to make it sound like yeah you're if you have weak control you're never going to be successful right i mean i think the, the answer is like that's part of who you are and that's going to lead to you having a certain set of skills and and uh, abilities that are, are going to make you kind of unique to you. Um, but yeah, I think it's a very good question about like, what is what is it that is constraining this? Is it neuromodulatory changes, right? So there's all sorts of uh, different neuromodulators that are in the brain and, and, and it could be changes in the receptors or the expression of neuromodulators. Um, it could be learned um, through development. Um, so yeah, I think all this, this is really open and really interesting questions. I mean, the, the other uh, sort of fad, or uh, I don't know if it's a fad, but it used to be that uh, an idea that if you train your kid, even before the kid is born, you know, introducing, you know, music and all sorts of things very, very early, 
then the brain appears to develop a lot faster. And do we have any evidence for that? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know, so I'm hesitant to, <laughs> to say anything <laughs> strong. Um, yeah, that's sort of outside my field. Um, yeah, I think it, it's a it's a great question. I mean, I, I environment has a very large effect on on um, cognitive development and on um, you know even the the gross anatomy of uh, the brain is really shaped by somebody's experiences uh, through life. And so, um, yeah, I would imagine you know whether or not it, it matters if you play you know, the baby Einstein CDs during in utero, I don't know, right? I, yeah, that, that I don't know. But I mean, for sure, um, I think that there's a very strong nurture effect, um, yeah. you know, at least there, in my there opinion. Some, there's some disease system, uh, as you know, um, I don't know how prevalent it is, I don't know the technical name for it, but there, there's some condition where uh, the individual does not have any, any um, ability to keep short-term memories. So, you know, there was a movie about this, you know, you wake up every morning and you, you have no memory of the previous day and you're essentially going on like that. Uh, so do we have any sort of insights from disease states like that, how mechanistically the brain might be working? Yeah, so most, um, most movies are about uh, amnesia, which is the inability to form long-term memories, actually. So you can't remember what you did yesterday because it didn't make it into long-term memory. So if you're having a conversation and everything's staying in short-term memory, staying in working memory, um, then you're perfectly normal. But as soon as you get distracted, right, if there's a loud bang outside the window and you look over there, you would completely forget what you were talking about, and you turn back and 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 not be able to reinstantiate uh, the the conversation from uh, from long term memory. And so, yeah, so that is that is um, thought to be very the the hippocampus, which is this sort of brain region that lives kind of in the center of uh, of the cortex, and often referred to, sometimes referred to as the medial temporal lobe as well. Um, is this brain region that's thought to be uh, sort of centrally important for uh, for formation of new long-term memories? Um, and so, uh, they patients who lose their hippocampus can't are these amnesic patients who can't form, can't remember what they did yesterday, or even uh, basically since they lost their hippocampus, they 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 don't have any recollection, but they have very normal working memories and short-term memory, which is interesting. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think these two systems seem to be divided. I mean, um, there there are some interesting, um, uh, I don't know, I don't know if disease is quite the right word, but there are there are some interesting um, populations of people who, for example, have trouble doing visualization, so they can't hold an image in working memory. Um, and I think this is just starting to be uh, um, really studied. Uh, and there's some interesting evidence that they they actually do okay on a lot of working memory tasks, even though they can't say like picture, like at least for me, if I if somebody were to tell me picture a pink elephant, I can kind of draw the pink elephant in my head and see its you know trunk and its feet and its ears and all of that. Um, some people can't, and um, it turns out that that. They do fine on these working memory tasks, which is a little bit interesting. Um, but it seems like they don't have um, an interaction between prefrontal cortex, which is this region that's thought to be involved in control, and visual cortex, uh, which is a region that's thought to be involved in sort of representing visual um, uh, information. That that connection seems to be broken uh, broken in when they're trying to remember, image, imagine things. Um, and so it seems to be that this sort of, we, you were talking before about these top-down signals, right? We talk about this top-down because we think about prefrontal cortex, both, first of all, it's at the front of your head. And, and so we think of it sort of descending backwards towards the back of your head, but also top in the sense that like, it's the higher cortical region. It's kind of the, um, the co more cognitive region. So it sends these top-down projections into visual cortex to sort of put in Kind of the visual representation like so that you're almost actually seeing the pink elephant right and and um 
and those seem to be broken in in these people, or at least not as strong um, in 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 these people. So it's it's interesting. So um, that's kind of the closest we we have, I think. You know, if you lose prefrontal cortex, um, if we damage prefrontal cortex, and this has happened. Uh, the most famous case of this is Phineas Gage, which I think you know a lot of people have sort of heard about from Psych 101. He was um, working on a railroad, tamping down explosives, and basically. Um, had an explosion and that drove a, 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 a railroad spike up through his prefrontal cortex and knocked out, basically obliterated prefrontal cortex. And what ends up happening in patients who don't have prefrontal cortex is they, they, they do lose a lot of these working memory um, abilities, but they also lose a lot of other control. So they, they, they become less directed in their behaviors. They, they are more um, impulsive. Um, where they just kind of, you know, if they see potato chips that they want to buy, they'll just buy them, even though they're not, you know, hungry or even though they're supposed to be on a diet or whatever, right? So mm -hmm. that kind of top-down control seems to be lost. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, there, there's also a condition that you cannot forget anything, right? Uh, and I don't know what the technical name for this. Anything that comes in, you you remember, yeah, yeah. These... And so there's sort of an efficient transfer of information to long-term memory, and that that is an equally problematic thing, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't. Um, yeah, so people with like sort of super uh, eidetic memories. Um, yeah, I don't, rem I don't know off the top of my, I can't remember off the top of my head. I would assume that has something to do with yeah, a, a, a ability to you know, remember things, long-term memory. So like, I don't know, better, more efficient storage of information in the hippocampus. Um, yeah, I, I don't know though. I don't know that I'm not up on that literature. Um, yeah. Yeah, so in this paper you say, our results suggest that prefrontal cortex controls cognition by dynamically transforming representations to control what and when cognitive computations will engage. And so, you know, one of the issues in AI today, as you know, is really not computation. It's really discarding information efficiently. What we have is just too much information. It's not lack of data. It's just too much data. Um, one of the advantages of the brain appears to be that it's very efficient in discarding information. Um, would, would you would you think like that? Yeah, I think that. The brain is very good at uh, sort of discovering what is important, right? And and that is a key thing um, for any learning system, right? If if you're in a new situation and you're trying to um, figure out, you know, how to behave, right? So if you walk into a new restaurant, right, you don't know is this a sit-down restaurant? Is this a is this a fast food place, right? You're you're looking around and you're gathering information about that and you're sort of using feedback uh, from from the environment, you're using rewards from the environment, let's say whether or not you successfully ordered dinner, right, and, and were able to eat, um, that's a reward. And, and you use that to, to sort of learn. If you don't know kind of how to assign that reward, like what is the key piece of information that I should um, look for next time I walk into a new restaurant, then you know that's that's sort of the problem that I think a lot of the old AIs uh, or machine learning approaches kind of face. It's it's um is how do I assign? It's this is called the credit assignment problem, right? How do I assign credit, learning credit to um, you know what I saw? Um, and the brain is incredibly good at that, right? So we would quickly pick up like, okay, yeah, there's this a hostess means sit down and order, whereas you know uh, a line of kiosks means fast food restaurant, right? And we we kind of zoom in on that, and we don't get kind of distracted by like, oh, there's bathrooms to the right, or you know, different color lighting or something like that. The information that's kind of irrelevant to the task at hand, we really focus in. And so there's been like a, a real, I think one of the the recent um, kind of evolutions in machine learning has been sort of developing architectures that are using more of like an attention mechanism to control exactly what both the network is looking at. But part of the reason why that's so powerful is because that's then controlling the learning signal, like where the feedback is 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 going to, in order to improve um, 
the system for the next the next iteration. Yeah, so I think again it comes back to this control ability and being able to focus in, attend to, or select if if you're if we're talking about working memory, you know, focus on one thing in working memory, the relevant thing in working memory. Um, yeah, is I think really fundamentally important, and and why we've been so interested in it, right? I mean, as for me, I'm I'm of course interested in the brain. I'm interested in understanding. Um, how we think and and how we're intelligent um but you know also one of the ways that we think we can apply this knowledge and, and make use of it is, is treating disease right but other ways is is to help sort of motivate the next uh generation of, of more flexible flexible more general um uh, machine learning and, and so yeah i think putting more control systems in is kind of is going to be really key uh to this ability yeah, I mean, it's sort of a top-down mechanism, uh, which we currently lack, right? Um, you know, when you think about deep learning networks and machine learning in general, it tends to be very bottoms-up and, and, and very sort of mathematically driven. What it's lacking is sort of a top-down mechanism um, with, um, I mean, you know, in the in the 80s, we used to call it expert systems, <laughs> a set of heuristics uh, driving down to to a decision, um, and that's not fashionable anymore. You know, it's very much deep learning that is that is currently fashionable, but I think in in for practical applications, those those things have a lot of drawbacks. Uh, I think. Um, so, so I want to go into another paper, which is another really interesting paper. So rotational dynamics reduce interference between sensory and memory representations. Uh, rotational dynamics, you say cognition depends on integrating sensory percepts with the memory of recent stimuli. How the distributed nature of neural, neural coding can lead to difference between sensory and memory representations. Here we show that the brain mitigates such interference by rotating sensory representations into orthogonal memory representations over time. Could you could you could you explain that then? Yeah. So um, you know we were talking before about the limited capacity of working memory and and the limited capacity of sensory representations and and how this you're representing this the reason why is because you're representing this information over you know, this large population where where all of the neurons are kind of contributing a little bit of information about uh, what you're remembering or what you're looking at. And it turns out, of course, as you might expect, that these two systems are, of course, interacting, right? The way that you get things into working memory or, or short-term memory is uh, through sensory input, right? And so when a new sensory input comes in, um, it can interfere with this memory representation uh, just like another memory representation could interfere with that memory representation or two sensory inputs could interfere with one another. And this becomes um, a, a real issue, particularly when you're trying to learn uh, uh, to make predictions in the world. Right? So I think one to, to me, probably one of the, the, the main reasons why the brain evolved was to predict what's going to happen next. Right. If if I can predict what's going to happen next better and more accurately than you, then like I can get there faster. I can sort of get the reward quicker, and I can grow bigger. And um, you know, from an evolution pr perspective, that's a really great thing. Um, and so, um, in this case, right, what do you have to do? Well, you have to say, well, you have to learn like kind of the the regularities of the world. So uh, you you learn like A is followed by B and B is followed by C. And the way that you learn this is because, um, you know, when A comes in, you remember it. And then when B comes in, you kind of have both of those together and you're remembering A and B together. And so in some ways you want these representations interacting, you want to be able to couple them together um, into an A-B kind of uh, prediction. So when next time I hear A, you know, in the classroom, I can say, oh, I know what's next. B is next, right? Um, so how do you do this, right? So how do you have these two different things represented independently, right? So that they're not interfering too much um, uh, so that you can kind of keep them both and then be able to couple them together. Um, so we were interested in this and so so to, to look at that, what we did is we just actually, we had mice sitting there listening to 
sequences of sounds. Basically, we played them in A tone, followed by a B tone, followed by a C tone. They just kind of like learned these sequences over time. And then we, we were recording neurons in, in auditory cortex of, of the, the mouse's brain. So there's a, this, again, is a, is a brain region that's involved in kind of representing these tones. And of course, when you play an A tone, neurons in the brain will represent A really strongly. And then when you play a B tone, they'll represent B really strongly. And so in some ways, it looked like things were being overwritten, that like when A was there, it was represented. But then when you put B in, A was kind of gone, and you're no longer representing uh, A, instead you're representing B, right? Because that's what you're hearing now. Um, but as I was saying, that's not great because you, you want to be able to remember kind of what you heard in the past. And so we actually went around, we went looking to see whether or not there was any information, any memory for A. And it turns out that there was, it just was stored in a different way, right? And um, and the sort of intuition that I think I often use to, to try to understand how it was stored in different ways, if you think about like a piece of paper, right? And if you, if you write on a piece of paper and then you write, get to the end of the piece of paper, right? You've basically filled up the piece of paper, and, but you wanna put something new on this piece of paper, you could go back to the top and just write over top of the old stuff, right? But that's going to cause a lot of interference. You're not really going to be able to read uh, uh, either the first thing that you wrote or the second thing that you wrote. So one way to handle this is you just take the piece of paper and you rotate it 90 degrees and you start writing in the margins, mm. right? And it turns out that that's what the brain does, right? So when that A came in, it was represented as an A sensory stimulus, and then it rotated 90 degrees. Right, so that piece of paper kind of rotated so that when B came in, it was now written in a different part of, of the neural space, right? So that there was, A was still over there, it's just, and B was now kind of where A used to be, right? So it kind of moved out of the way uh, from the new input coming in. And that allowed both of these things to be represented at the same time. So, so that makes sense when you have a capacity constraint, but if you don't, you could just push off A to, some other dimension, right? I mean, if you don't have a capacity constraint, that should not be an issue, right? Yeah, well, I mean, that is, in in essence, that's what's going on, right? You're, you're basically pushing off A into another dimension, right? So, um, uh, you know, if, if we think about like the, the number line, right, representing kind of that first tone, um, What's happening is that the brain's rotating it so that you know that x-axis becomes a y-axis, and then that x-axis is now free again uh, to to represent the the next thing that comes in. And so, it is in its essence kind of doing what you're suggesting. Um, it's not, you know, you could think about this as as well. Maybe what you do is you have a pool of neurons that represent you know, that first tone, the, the x-axis, right? And then you have a separate pool that represents that that y-axis. Um, uh, and so that you, you basically take whatever was in that first pool and you hand it off to the second pool and now the first pool is free to get something new put into it. In this case, that doesn't seem to be what was happening, right? So it, it turns out that, as we were talking about before, right, like that that is one way to do it, but then each pool would have kind of half the resolution um, of, of the you know, possible. And so it seems like actually the brain just kind of uses everything to represent A and then it rotates it um, into a different dimension of, of that same large population. Um, it's, so, yeah, so it's easy to draw. It's hard to sort of explain. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I get it. So, so there has to be some sort of localization benefit, right? So if, if I, if I understand this correctly, uh, Tim, it's, it's a bit like, the brain has a goal of creating a heuristic, and the heuristic is B comes after A, C comes after B. That's the heuristic, that's the goal of creating the heuristic. There has to be some localization benefit to create that heuristic at the point when A, B, and C are coming in. And so if I understand this correctly, it is basically creating that heuristic orthogonal to the data input vector. Is that the way to... To think, I guess so. Is, is your question why is all this happening in in within the same network? Why not have it within in, the same network? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's a it's a good question. I mean, uh, my guess. I mean, we don't know for sure, of course, but my guess is that um, 
the way that learning happens in the brain is uh, through neurons interacting with one another. Um, and so you want to have the same population of neurons um, representing both pieces of information so that they can do this interaction and so that you can begin uh, to make these these predictions. Um, yeah, because I think if you separate them out, it's going to be harder for them to that information to overlap, right? So again, it's kind of like one of these trade-off scenarios where it's like you want some overlapping, but not too much. And um, yeah, and, and I think this this could be one way that that's my hypothesis at least. This is one way that the brain is. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, there's a lot of implications for artificial intelligence too. Um, you know, the architectures that we pursue today uh, have none of these features. Um, actually, right. So, if, yeah. if if there are advantages here, uh, perhaps you know this could be embedded into silicon at some point. Um, so, so, so I want to finish up your uh, with another paper toward a neurobiology of internal selective attention. Uh, you say a recent study of non-human primates uh, brings the investigation of selective attention within visual working memory to the systems and cellular neuroscience levels. Uh, you say we reflect on the breakthrough in uh, breakthrough of nearly 20 years of later research in humans and highlight some of the lessons to help uh, future work. So, so let me ask you in conclusion, um, where do you think we are going <laughs> with this research? Uh, if you sort of uh, look, look forward five, 10 years, uh, what what is the area that you are sort of most excited about? Where do you think we will make sort of the most uh, interesting leaps forward? Yeah, so that that paper was actually written. I just want to clarify that it was written by Kia Nobre, who's a um, she's a professor at Oxford. She uh, was talking about some of our our work in that, um, and I think you know what she was sort of highlighting there is that, is that there is. These questions, are, I think, are of of how do you control um, in the brain? How do you control neural representations? Um, have been studied for a long time, of course, um, and and there's just been, I think, incremental progress. And, and our work is just one more step, I think, in in this process. I think, to me, where the field's going that I'm really excited about is uh, um, the understanding the brain and understanding computation from a uh, dynamical point of view, right? So uh, as you were sort of alluding to before, right, the, if we think about most machine learning systems now, they're, they're very static, right? Input comes in, output goes out. Um, and in contrast, behavior, right, and the brain is, is highly dynamic right the part of this is because the brain's very recurrent right so you know inputs come into the eye they go up into the visual system which then eventually goes up into the prefrontal cortex and then it goes right back down and from prefrontal cortex back into the visual system so there's there's all these loops everywhere in in the brain and, and what this means is that things evolve and change over time and it's been very hard, I think, to get a hold of these dynamics and understand these dynamics. Um, and because they really, in part, because you have to record a lot of neurons simultaneously. And so we're just as a field, um, you know, we've been chipping away at this problem. And I think we, you know, we were recording from, you know, 100 neurons, and now we're starting to record from 200 neurons or 1,000 neurons. And, and, you know, I think eventually we'll continue to get to the grow number of neurons that we're recording to really be able to look at these dynamics and understand how are things evolving? How are things changing? How are things communicating and talking to one another? Different brain regions are talking to one another. And and um, what role is all this playing in, in cognition and in, in the computation of, of us being able to produce all of this sort of flexible, general uh, intelligence? Um, and so I think I'm really excited about that and, and sort of seeing um, it, it already has become, you know, a really big part of the field, and I think, but just continuing to see it grow as, as a contribution. And I think, again, thinking back to, to sort of practically how this is going to influence people's lives, um, I think as we integrate these dynamics, we'll understand a lot more about how to treat uh, disease, right? Because, again, it's not that a lot of these diseases are not static, right? They're not, um, you don't have 
they don't express themselves in the same way at every single moment in time. Instead, they're also very dynamic processes. And so I think when we think about how do we treat them, we have to think about treating them in, in a way that interfaces with these dynamics um, and, and changes over time. Um, and then also, you know, from bringing it to to bear in, in artificial intelligence and, and continuing to improve um, machine learning with all of the, you know, I think implications that has for for improving, you know, society and human lives. Right. Again, I think we just need to um, bring some of these dynamics um, to those systems. And part of that's going to be understanding how they work in the brain so that we can kind of design them in a, in a sensible way, I think, in, in AI. Yeah, two big fields, um, brain diseases and artificial intelligence. And you're sitting sort of at the intersection of both of these, right? Um, understanding memory, understanding computing mechanisms. Clearly, we haven't figured out the architecture. Um, yeah, we have a long way to go. <laughs> <laughs> we have a long way to go. Yeah, so, no, it's what makes neuroscience so much fun is that uh, I think there's so much to do and also it's just such a so many cool questions. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Tim. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Yeah, thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.